the best thing that you will do this day or any day of your life is to take in your hands the inspired, God-breathed, living, powerful Word of God. To read it, to learn it, to obey it is to experience the abundant life that Christ came to provide. So I invite you to open a Bible at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We will in a few minutes be reading the end of that chapter beginning at verse 8 through to verse 14. Now, beloved, it was 10 months ago, first Lord's Day in January of this year, that I asked you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been on quite a journey in the fisherman's shoes, or I guess I should say his sandals, if you will, since we first took up this study of the Apostle Peter's spirit-breathed letter, which he penned to the suffering first-century believers, those who had put their trust in Christ and for whom many would lose everything, and some of them even be called upon to lay down their very lives for the God of their salvation. Today we do come to the last of the verses in this fifth chapter, and I would have you follow along as I read for us the final seven verses. First Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit... Beyond the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you to him be dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, send you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let's pray again. Spirit of the living God, author of the written word, open our eyes to behold from its pages. He who is the living word, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Seeing him change us by his grace and glory to be more like him. Amen. This very week, were we not in awe and deeply moved by the rescue of those 33 precious lives in Chile, the miners 
brought up from the depths of the earth after being entombed for 69 days, to be embraced by family, friends, a very proud nation, and really the whole world. The story continues to unfold, and folks, isn't it nice? It's all good news for a change. I was particularly struck by the reflection of a fellow theologian who watched the first of the rescuers, as we did, the first of the rescuers suiting up to take the untested journey down to the miners. Uh, This is what the uh, doctor of theology said, and I quote, The rescuer leaves the safety above to descend into a dark and dangerous place where his help is needed. To do so, he takes on the very attire of those that he is sent to rescue. And then this theologian began to quote scripture. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That commentator went on to say, Praise God for the Chilean rescuers and the technology they developed to bring men from darkness into light. And praise God for our great rescuer who drilled, as it were, a much deeper hole to save us from an even greater darkness. It's as though we had an object lesson of the gospel itself this very week in all places, of all places, CNN. Well, that is much of Peter's message to all of us rescued and redeemed by the blood of Christ. When persecution, affliction, and suffering, all the effects of living in a fallen world, Peter would remind them that Christ has come the first time to deliver us from sin's dominion, and he will most certainly come a second time to complete the rescue operation by extricating us from the very presence of sin. And to bring us to our true home in glory forever. Until Jesus comes, as we've said throughout this entire epistle, we have this living hope. Because the living hope is Jesus. And he is there even in the worst of times. This was sustaining truth in Peter's day. And to this very hour, it is set forth. At the very beginning of the epistle for us as well. I want you to listen again one more time for a while. We'll be leaving First Peter for some time. Who knows if we'll all be together and back in it for another exposition, at least here at Good Shepherd Church. 
But it was the first verses in the first chapter that set the theme for all five chapters. And here's what I want to invite you to do. I would suggest that you might like to be there where you are, but close your eyes. You feel safe enough to do that? Close your eyes if you would like. Some of you may even want to tilt your heads toward heaven, your true home. And I want you to hear the words speak for themselves. Just listen to this as though you were hearing it for the first time and it was coming directly from the Lord above to your heart. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. For you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Well, open your eyes, beloved. And then let me say this. Whatever is your present trial, whatever sense of uncertainty or even actual loss, whatever your present struggle, perhaps a, a bitterness of soul, depression or even anger, whatever it is, if you are trusting in Christ, this word tells us that you are protected by the power of God and that the outcome of all tried and tested faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the second coming of Christ. No wonder we sometimes say, as I uttered last evening to my own wife, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do you believe the words we have just read? If you do, then even your tears, necessary tears, should be mingled with seasons of real rejoicing and joy. Peter says, an inexpressible kind and full of glory, joy. 
And I just would suggest that in these matters, we all have some work to do, don't we? So let us be strengthened again as we hear the last words of Peter in this first letter of his. While he is the human instrument, the writer, I most intentionally entitled this last sermon, God Writes the Final Chapter. That is to say that our sovereign God and Jesus as Lord, Peter says having dominion, that is he dominates everything and controls everything, that this God, our Lord, our Savior, always, 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 are you ready, has the last word about everything. He has been writing his story on the tablet of your heart. You and I have known and will continue for a time to journey through many dangers, toils, and snares. But grace, this one that Peter calls the God of all grace, this grace reminds us that we've been brought safe thus far. And the same God of grace will lead us safely home. I'm telling you that no matter what may be the present circumstance, our ultimate destiny is already determined and guaranteed. So we sing such songs with conviction. Oh, that will be glory for me, right? And Peter knows that that established fact is meant to encourage our faith while the battle still rages. We are not yet home, and I have to remind us, Satan is not yet bound. In fact, at times, for reasons known only to God, the devil's leash seems rather long. Just ask Job. Satan is not well, but he is alive. His stalking presence, his harassing princely rule as the prince of the power of all spiritual things that govern this world apart from the true God. In this fallen world, it does mean, hear me, saints, he can hurt us. He can and does cause real harm. He is at war and does violence to the kingdom principles of Christ himself. And I want to tell you that if this devil had permission, he could kill you. And we have the responsibility to hear clearly the commands of the one who is the captain of our souls, the Lord of hosts. And Jesus is his name. You want to get as near to the front lines where he is and right next to him. 
maybe a step behind him, if you're wise. Back in chapter 3 of this letter, we were studying way back when, verses 18 through 22. I'm not going to re-preach the message, but in that last verse of uh, chapter 3, verse 22, we read there that Christ... Having been raised from the dead, now listen carefully, I quote, is now at the right hand of God, his Father, having gone into heaven, but not until this. Jesus, on the third day, rises again. In time, he will ascend to the Father. He will be seated because his work of redemption is finished at the right hand of God. But that verse says in chapter 3 and verse 22, he will only go and be seated after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Peter loves this theme of Christ's dominion. The fact that he is the dominant power in control of even the evil forces unleashed in this world by the multitude of fallen angels and their leader, the Lucifer. That is to say, beloved, that the devil, in the final analysis, when it comes to God's children, and here was the title of the sermon back then, is a toothless lion. For what I wanted to indicate in that particular text at that time, not that the devil is a harmless roaring lion, but that he cannot clamp down with those death-dealing teeth apart from Christ giving him such liberty for whatever reasons ultimately for God's own glory. Lucifer himself subjected to Christ, along with every fallen angel, the demons, under his authority. Peter had a foretaste of that victory when Jesus said to him on one occasion, and I remind you, this was before Peter's denials. This was before Peter's spiritual failure. That Satan, Peter, Jesus said, has indeed wished to sift you like wheat. Now, I want to say Satan did that. Satan did sift Peter like so much straw. But Christ, you remember, added the all-important truth. And I quote, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Peter knew shameful failure, certainly at the designs of Satan, but Peter never had to dread the destruction of his weak faith in Christ. In fact, when he was restored, he became one of the all-time champions of Christ and his kingdom, gladly laying down his life for his Lord. I want you to see how that works. I said at the time of that exposition, the toothless lion, that I have never been chewed up unto death by this toothless lion. But I said at that time that on occasion, I think I've almost been gummed to death. 
His roar alone can stop a heart. And he is no declawed cat. So what is our responsibility? Could it be more clear than the call that Peter gives toward the end of this important letter? A watchful sobriety. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. We're going to read 8 and 9 again. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, I really do think there are some rules for engagement. There are battle rules of engagement here in just these two verses. This is not all the Bible has to say about how we are to do spiritual warfare when it comes to this adversary, the devil. But even in these two verses, there is great ammunition. There is great help for our souls. And I want you to see it. Number one, expect an attack at any time. Why else would he say, be of sober spirit, be on The alert. Let me restate the principle as I would set it forth. Expect an attack at any time. Can I add this out of my own experience? Expect an attack at any time, especially when you least expect it. This is a call for a serious watchfulness. The sentry guarding the gates. Because Satan lurks. He is a master spy of deceit. He is quite apparently active looking for an opening. For some Christian to fall asleep when it comes to this matter of vigilance. Expect an attack at any time. Until you learn this, maybe you need to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. The actual words. Deliver us. The the literal translation is, so many people miss this in the Lord's Prayer. I know that it says, deliver us from temptation, deliver us from evil. The literal translation is the evil one. And remember, that was to be as much a concern of every day's prayer as it was to ask for daily bread. Deliver us from the evil one. So expect an attack at any time, especially when you least expect it. Number two, he is to be resisted. We're told what to do. Resist him. But I need to make clear here what the rest of the Bible teaches about spiritual conflict. This is not a uh, hand-to-hand combat thing. You would lose that arm wrestling match every time. But he is to be resisted. It is, it is a matter, he says... Of standing firm in your what? Do you see it there? In your faith. And this is one of those times where the word faith is used to describe the content of what it is you say you have faith in. It is the truth that you believe. Standing firm in what you believe. Your faith. He's to be resisted. Do you remember how Jesus 
was tempted. Jesus never answered the devil out of some shooting from the hip, spontaneity of words. Nor did he do some nutty things like trying to bind the devil as people sometimes speak. He doesn't get all mystical there in the wilderness as he's being tempted. You tell me, what did Jesus do? He stated what he believed and didn't even rely on his own words, but took directly from the revealed and written word of God. He quoted scripture. And there were no Gideon Bibles available out there in the wilderness. He knew scripture was in his heart. And when the hour of struggle came, he resisted the devil, standing firm in what he believed. He quoted scripture. Not because he thought the words were were magical, like wearing a garland of garlic or something, but because the words were truth. The one thing the devil cannot bear and from which he will ultimately flee is truth. I've got a pet peeve as a preacher and a pastor. When someone says to me, oh, all this doctrine, you're always having to teach this, all this doctrine. Is doctrine really that important? Well, the word doctrine means truth and it's what Jesus used to resist the devil. And Peter says, if you're going to stand firm against the onslaughts of this Satan, you better have some doctrine. You better be indoctrinated. You need the truth hidden in your heart. This is a serious thing. Thirdly, a third thing Peter says in this, in the battle against the fiery darts of the wicked one, he reminds us that we're not to go it alone. No lone rangers in this enemy territory called the world. Would you look at it there? He states in verse 9 that we should remember that the same experiences of suffering, inspired by Satan himself, you see, are being accomplished by your brethren. Always when you read brethren, put cisterns in there as well for you sisters. He's saying we are all in this battle together. The key word in that verse is together. Because that's a word that describes the church of the living God. You're to be part of a church. You're not to stand alone. You are to understand all of us need each other as part of our arsenal. Well, now in verse 10, such satanic opposition and every kind of challenge to your faith and mine. Get this. Verse 10 is very important to us. It is a temporary thing. It is a temporary thing. I really like the old phrase, don't you? This too shall pass. Beloved, heaven and earth shall pass away, says the Lord. But my word shall never pass away. The truth that arms us is truth that remains. Look at verse 10. After you have suffered for how long? You tell me. 
It says a little while. It's the second time we've read a little while in Peter's letter. Now, having read a little while and your pain has been long for some, maybe even lifetime. Let me say this is also true that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. But a little while is always anything Now, how long it takes in this world because this world is passing away. And compared to eternity, a lifelong battle. You see, this verse can even include lifelong disabilities from birth all the way to death because, as I said, a thousand years here doesn't amount to even one day in glory. So he says in verse 10, it is this God of all grace, the God of all what? That means he's going to give you what you don't deserve, but what you need. The God of all grace, hold the thought, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Let me ask you, even against all the powers of hell and of Lucifer, how secure is your destiny if it is the God of all grace who himself will call you as your destiny to glory? It is secured in Christ. What does this personified living hope do? It's in the text. He will himself. That's a study in itself. The things that God deems so important to his redeemed children that he will not leave it to the errands of the angels. There are some things that he must do himself. Peter was the one who told us he himself must go to the cross. He himself must bear your sins and mine in his own body. No other person could do that and redeem us. And this same Christ himself, he will himself, read it with me there in 10, verse 10, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. The risk of taking too much time, which I usually take the risk and fail and do. Each of those words real quick. Will you allow me that? He himself, after we've suffered for a little while, will perfect. That word means that he will complete. Nothing will be left undone that he is destined. He will complete the work he began when he saved us in the first place. I am confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will complete that work until Jesus comes. And in fact, that's when it will be completed. Next, he says, he himself will confirm you. He will make sure that we have all we need to stand firm in the evil days of our sojourn. As when he prayed for Peter, I mentioned that. So he also prays for us. And in John 17, where we have a record of his prayer, he tells us to he tells his father, I have not and I will not lose one that you have given to me. I will confirm them. And then we'll take the next two words here together. Strengthen and establish. 
Strength for today. Isn't that true? I just said a couple of people this morning. Let's just take this one day at a time. Now, it really is wise pastoral counsel because it's biblical counsel. And it also is the teaching of our God who says today is where you need to be concerned, not overly concerned. In fact, don't worry about tomorrow. It is strength for today to strengthen. But then this phrase goes on and says and establish. So this is strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Standing firm by his strength, not ours, and standing apparently where he establishes us, that is where he places us. Recently, I had the delight of just being away for a time with my wife, just my wife and me and the Lord, and we had a great time of vacation. We spent one week up there on the Jersey Shore, which is really home for us. Uh, Ocean City, New Jersey, was where we always went as kids when we wanted to go to the ocean for the day. My wife and I sat on the boardwalk. We ate Johnson's caramel corn, way too much of it. We watched the people passing by. We recalled even our childhood memories. But then, much to my delight, I found one of the best places to have breakfast in Ocean City. If you're going to go there, speak to me. I'll send you to uh, the, uh, what is it called, the Beach House Grill. We had such a good experience there, we didn't have breakfast anywhere else. We just went back to the Beach House Grill. They had some of my favorite things, some stuff you don't even know about. Like, how many of you know what Scrapple is? You've got to be almost from Philadelphia or New Jersey. See that? Great breakfast. We loved it so much, as we do sometimes when we travel, I wanted to bring home a a souvenir, a a token of our trip to just kind of now sit in Inglewood at times and remember. So I thought a coffee mug would be a really great idea. So we each got a coffee mug, has the name of the place on it, Beach House Grill. But you know what it says under there? It says established 1990. Now that little cafe with great breakfast had been doing their thing now for 20 years. They were doing a strong business. To be established. That's the picture here. How many years since you've come to know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? For some of you, it's been less than three years. For some, it's been 30 years. For some, 60, 70 years. I don't know. But from the day you first believed, you were strengthened to make it all the way home. And you've been established all this time by the grace of God. How can we be certain of this? You say, Pastor, you're saying some things that are just, well, like the gospel itself, almost too good to be true. How can we be certain of this? Especially when the battle seems to rage on and the suffering is intense. We don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And the last guy you knew that did, it turned out to be the light of a train coming your direction. How can we be so certain of these wonderful truths? Well, look at verse 11. It says to Christ, this one who is our living hope, to him again be dominion. Only he could do this and may it be forever and forever. Amen. You know what verse 11 is to me? I sometimes call it this. I shouldn't probably be as irreverent in the pulpit. 
But I look at a phrase like that, and there are many in Scripture. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I hear it saying to me, so shut up already. Or in a more dignified way, I hear God saying, be still. Be still and know that I am God. And you say, but pastor, you don't know the circumstances. No, I don't. But I know that Christ has dominion forever and forever. And you are his. And there is nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from his love. And your destiny is guaranteed. We have truth, his own righteousness. I have that when Satan tries to point out my sins, and he does, and he doesn't have a hard time finding them. I can point to Christ's righteousness when that happens, which covers me, and he runs away. I resist him with that truth. We have the message of the gospel itself, that the God of all grace has made both salvation and sanctification and my glorification all of grace. And lest Satan pick apart my puny efforts to live a consistent Christian life, Christ gives us a peace that guarantees we will never, ever come under his condemnation, even when we do mess up, because he's already borne the curse for us. His grace supplies the very faith with which we are able To extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. My mind is protected by this great salvation. And the captain of my faith, he puts a sword in my hand like no other saber. It is the sword of God's own Holy Spirit, the Word of God. And then with it all, he says, pray, pray, pray. Knowing that I am heard because I have learned to come in Jesus' name. That name which opens all the arsenals of heaven for my ultimate victory. Beloved, this is the truth of God's Word. Have I made these things up? No. Most of you know by now that I've referenced Ephesians 6. Our suit of armor. This God of all grace has so thoroughly equipped us and there is no battle for our souls but what? He Himself is there placing around us His own divine glory as an impenetrable fortress. Luther said it well, one of my heroes, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, the body sure they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. And every essential piece of the armor, you better believe it, is a grace gift. It is a grace gift. He's equipping us to remain until he comes and brings us home. Well, Peter knows it's time to close the letter. So do I. It's very personal. At this point, he mentions his secretary, Sylvanus, a faithful brother in Christ. Uh, There is, if you saw, some dear unnamed sister in Babylon. Some have said it could be a reference to his wife. He was married and maybe he had a son by the name of Mark. Or some have said it could be first century code for the church in that location, which would be Egypt today. Then he ends by this matter of greeting one another with a kiss. 
Before some of you men get carried away with this, I'll remind you that culturally the men and the women worshipped in separate groups. I happen to know that some of you are uncomfortable with hugs. What a shame. I get that. And one dear lady tell me not too long after I came to this church, after I hugged her, uh, she said, I don't like hugs. So I said, well, we'll shake hands every week, but I'm going to love you just as much as all the other people I hug. The message of it is we are to be affectionately, if not physically, obviously, bound together by our love for Christ and his love for us, which causes us to love one another. Now the question, have you been established in what Peter calls the true trace of the true grace of God? I love that phrase. The true grace of God. Make sure you get the true grace of God. In verse 12 there he says, stand firm in that true grace. And I have to ask, what is your confidence? If I could address each of you individually, separately, I would say, what is your confidence? Should Christ return this afternoon? Or if not, should Satan attack? Or before the end of this next week, you're assaulted by every kind of trial. The question is, are you in Christ? That's the true grace of God. And if you can say, yes, I am, then Peter's benediction becomes yours. The last words of what has been this profound, grace-saturated, cross-centered, Christ-exalting epistle. What is it? Peace be to you all, with only one qualification, to all who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Is he your only confidence? Is your hope of heaven 110% resting upon not what you do, but what he has done? I invite you this very day to make certain of that.